Good morning. So has anybody told you they hadn't seen you since last year? <laughs> Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for this opportunity that we have to come and hear your word proclaimed and allow your Holy Spirit to breathe that word of life into our hearts. Thanks for the time that we have just had to lift our voices, to express our love and thanks to you. I pray that you will now speak to us and by the agency of your Holy Spirit, illuminate these truths and let us be changed by your encounter with your word. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to begin a new book. We're going to begin the book of First Thessalonians, so you might want to start looking for it at this time. You know, we just, we just uh, finished with Christmas and New Year's, but it occurred to me that we were in the middle of Esther. We kind of jumped right through Thanksgiving, but we should probably back up a little bit and talk about Thanksgiving. What we celebrate as Thanksgiving uh, was first held November of 1621 when... English pilgrims were in Massachusetts. However, that was not the first English Thanksgiving. That was in Virginia in 1519, which was not the first European Thanksgiving in the New World because that was in St. Augustine in 1565. But the one we celebrate, um, the, the pilgrims uh, in, in Massachusetts. The curious thing about the whole Thanksgiving is that it's hard to figure out what they had to be thankful for. I mean, they started out with 102 pilgrims and there were only 53 of them left. That first Thanksgiving was held um, with 90 Native American Indians and only 53 of the surviving pilgrims. They'd, they'd had scurvy, starvation. It was a, a bitter cold winter, there was lots of people lost through all of that, and yet they paused through all of the tragedies that they'd experienced to uh, give thanks to God. Thanksgiving has been nationally celebrated on and off since uh, George Washington issued a proclamation in 1789. Thomas Jefferson didn't like it, so he chose not to observe Thanksgiving. It wasn't until 1863 when President Lincoln issued a national decree but I liked the way he proclaimed it. He said that it should be a national day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in heaven. And then he called all of the American people with humble penitence for our national perverseness and disobedience to servantly implore the imposition, interposition of the almighty hand to heal the wounds of the nation. Isn't it odd that we should have to be told to give thanks? I mean, you know as parents, you have to tell your kids that all the time. You know it's good to give thanks, and you know your kids are disinclined to do so, and so we remind them of it. But I think thanklessness is actually a human, uh, a, a human trait. You know, we are, we are prone to not give thanks. You consider, remember when Jesus encounters the ten lepers? He's, it's in Luke chapter 10. He's, he's on his way through Samaria, and he encounters these ten lepers. They stand at a distance, and they say, Master Jesus have mercy on us. And he tells them, you know, go and show yourselves to the priest. They all turn and go and show to the priest. They're all cleansed. But the story is that one of them, as soon as he realizes that he's healed, this one turns back to um, praise God and give thanks to Jesus. And he falls on his feet and, and, and thanks him. 
And then Jesus answers, uh, were there not ten that were healed, where are the nine? Was there no one found to give thanks except this foreigner? He's referring to the fact that this guy is a, is a Samaritan. Thankfulness and giving thanks is a, is a trait we all need to develop. We need to learn it and, and, and imitate it. And that's what this first chapter of 1 Thessalonians is all about. It's about um, being thankful and, and giving thanks. And so, again, would you please turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. There's a little bit about background. Paul and his companions had traveled to Thessalonica about 49 or 50 A.D., and by that time, it was all already a well-established city. It had been in existence for about 400 years. Thessalonica was uh, founded by Cassander, who was one of Alexander the Great's generals, and he, uh, he happened to marry Alexander the Great's half-sister, so he named the city after his wife, Thessaloniki. So the, the name of the city was after this guy's that this guy's wife. It was a really strategic city. It's, if you go up the Aegean Sea, there's a little uh, inlet, the Thermaic Gulf, and Thessalonica is at the top of that gulf, but it's also right on the main thoroughfare, the Via Ignatia, the, uh, one of the main roads from Rome going east. So it was a highly strategic city um, for, uh, for a number of reasons. The story about Paul's trip to Thessalonica is found in Acts chapter 17. I'll just give you a thumbnail view of that. But it came to be evangelized when Paul was on his second missionary journey. Remember his first missionary journey, he was with Barnabas. They had kind of a falling out after that. So uh, Paul takes Silas, his Greek name is Sylvanus. So when we get to the text there and it says Paul and Sylvanus, you know who he's talking about. Paul takes Silas with him as his, as his missionary companion. When they're uh, in Lystra, they pick up a young man named Timothy. When they get as far as Troas, which is on the very western tip of Turkey, they pick up Luke. And we know that because Luke uses the we, the we inclusive words where he's present and they when he's not present. So that the four of them... Um, decide that they're going to take the gospel into Europe. And they take a voyage through the northern Aegean Sea, mostly going from east to west. And they land first at uh, Philippi. And at Philippi, it's a, it's a very successful uh, ministry there. Luke stays there in Philippi. And then Paul takes Silas and Timothy with him. And they head in a westerly slightly south direction to come to Thessalonica. Luke stays behind. There was apparently a fairly large Jewish population in Thessalonica because they had a synagogue. Luke in Acts 17 tells us that Paul preached in the synagogue for three weeks. And he also tells us what Paul's preaching strategy was. He'd appear to the Jews, appeal to the Jews first, and he would show them from Scripture that the Messiah had to suffer and die and be raised from the dead. He needed to, to prove that point from their scriptures. And his second point was to talk about the history, the life of Jesus and his death and resurrection. And his third point was to put those two points together and say the Christ of Messiah is the Jesus of history. As a consequence of his preaching those three weeks in the synagogue, we're told that many Jews 
came to believe in him, as did a number of God-fearing Gentiles. You may remember from previous sermons, when we talk about God-fearing Gentiles, we're talking about a specific kind of people. They're not Jews, but they go to synagogue. They haven't been circumcised. They haven't been proselytized, so they're not Jewish. They're, they remain distinctly um, barbarian, uh, non-Jews, but they're worshiping the one true God. So Luke tells us that a number of Jews, God-fearing Gentiles, and some prominent women from this community came to faith as a consequence of his preaching. Um, Luke just says he was there for three weeks in the synagogue, but because there were a lot of uh, converts, he was probably in Thessalonica for several months in, in this mission. So he's, he's there for several months, but the Jews are rather aggravated. The Jews that didn't get converted are rather aggravated with, with Paul, and they, they basically hire some thugs to uh, stir up trouble, to cause a riot. And they, they, they riot, and they, they try to capture Paul and Silas. They go to the house of his host, who's Jason, to try to arrest him. They're not there but Jason is, and so the, the mob drags Jason to the, the city magistrates, whom Luke correctly calls politarchs, and they accuse him of a rather serious crime. So they drag Jason to the magistrates, and they said, these men have caused trouble all over the world and have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. Here's the accusation. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there's another king, one called Jesus. Well, that's pretty serious if you're a Roman colony, that there would be someone saying that there's a, there's a rival king to Caesar. So the magistrates forced Jason to put up a bond. He's basically put on bail to, and then released. He's, the bond is that you're promising that there's not going to be any further rioting or any... Um, disruptive activity. So at that point, the Christian brothers take Paul and Silas out of town in the dead of night. They head then south to Berea, and the Jews follow Paul there. So he's only in Berea for a very short time, and that forces Paul to continue his southward journey towards um, Athens and to Corinth. But Paul at this point is rather anxious to know how things are going with the church in Philippi and Thessalonica. And so he sends uh, Timothy and um, Silas back north to these towns where they'd started churches to see how things are going. So Timothy is, is sent to Thessalonica. Silas is probably sent up to Philippi. Luke's probably still in Philippi. So Paul wants to hear, because he had to leave under such adverse conditions, he wants to hear how things are, are going there. But things got hot where he was, and it causes Paul to continue his southward journey to Corinth. And it was there from Corinth that Paul writes this letter that we're looking at now, 1 Thessalonians. It's probably his second letter. It's probably the second oldest letter book of the New Testament, because probably Paul wrote Galatians before the Jerusalem Council. That's when he picks up Silas and goes on his second trip. And now here, in about 50, maybe 51, from Corinth, Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica. That brings us to our text, 1 Thessalonians 1.1. Paul, Silvanus, remember he's Silas, 
Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So he, he begins these this chapter, really, the whole theme of chapter one is we give thanks to God for these reasons. We give thanks to God. We, we, he's thankful to God for what took place in the Thessalonian church. He's, he's thankful that, that God has, has, has pricked their hearts and they've caused them to get saved and that there is a church. Now, he could have congratulated, in fact, he kind of does. He congratulates them for their faith, hope, and love. And he could have been... Um, he could have felt rather proud of the fact that he, he, it was his efforts that, that caused them to, to come to Christ. But ultimately, he acknowledges that their turning to God and his ability to be effective in his preaching is ultimately due to God and not to them or to himself. And so the reason that he's given thanks to God is God is the source. God is the active agent. It's God at work here. It's God to whom all thanksgiving must be given. And that then sets the tone of the entire first chapter. Now, the reason why Paul um, and his missionary, fellow missionaries give thanks to God is because we remember your faith, your, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfast hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. It gives thanks Here's that triad. You know, we've seen this many times through Scripture, the faith, hope, and love. It's a little different here. He talks about um, uh, the order is different, faith, love, and hope. But we've seen this, this triad many times in Scriptures. Uh, in Romans chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 13, Galatians 5, Colossians 1, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, uh, 1 Peter 1. And, of course, we all know from the end of the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, you know how it, it ends, um, now abideth faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these things is love. So, you know, we're familiar with this triad, but there's a several aspects about this triad of faith, hope, and love that we need to look at. And the first one is that it's, each one of these things is outgoing. Faith is directed towards God. Love is directed towards others. Hope is directed towards the future, and in particular, the future of the soon return of Jesus Christ. Faith rests in the past. Love works in the present. Uh, hope uh, looks to the future. So you could say, really, this is a description of the change that the Holy Spirit puts us through when we get saved. So every one of us is a hoper. Every one of us is a lover. Every one of us is a Faither. I don't know why that's not a word. It really ought to be a word, faither. But, of course, I'm talking about that you're a believer, the fact that you believe, you have faith. So th those are signs that, in fact, you have the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, that work within you. Now, a second aspect of these three is that they're all productive. And Paul emphasizes that, uh, that faith works, uh, that love uh, labors, that hope endures, Faith works in the sense that it, it produces good works in us. Remember, James talks about that works, the faith without works is dead. Well, there's no disagreement between Paul and James. He, Paul and James are talking about the same thing, but from different aspects. You know, faith issues in works, and in James, he says, works are the consequence of faith. They're saying the same thing, they're just placing it in different order. Also, also love for people, 
causes us to labor for them. Otherwise, love just degenerates into something that's uh, purely sentimental. Um, Hope looks expectantly for the Lord's return, and that produces endurance in us. You know, you could say that this is so comprehensive when he says your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by, by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. That, in essence, is a brief de- definition of what Christianity means. I mean, right there is a, is a, is a brief de- definition here. Anyway, verse 4. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So Paul first addresses these guys as brothers. That was a lot more popular than it is today. The whole concept of uh, considering Christians as brothers came from Judaism, where they call each other brothers. They quite literally were related to one another as well as having the same faith. And of course, Jesus... Jesus is our brother. We all have God the Father in common. Jesus uses the example, you know, they come to him, hey, your your mom and your family are outside and want to talk to you. And then Jesus says, who are my my brothers? Here's my mother and my brother. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my mother. So, so, So we're following Jesus' example that we call one another brother. So it's not surprising then, this becomes a very favorite term among the early Christians and also of Paul. In fact, Paul uses this term brother 130 times in in his writing. The word brother, referring to fellow Christians, is found in every single book of the New Testament, with the exception of 2 John and Jude, which are just really brief letters. So it's a real common thing. And when the term brother is not meant to be male chauvinistic, it's all-inclusive. It means both female and male uh, co-heirs with Christ when he's talking about brothers. It's just an economy of speech. So again, Paul is making a very clear reference here as he often does in his letters to the doctrine of election. And he says, um, knowing brethren beloved, your election of God. In fact, the word he uses for chosen here is uh, ek eklektos, from which we get the word elections. And we see this several times in Scripture. It's a, it's a doctrine which causes confusion and uneasiness in us. It's a doctrine that causes difficulties and raises questions. But to be sure, this whole concept of election runs all the way through Scripture, and Paul keeps bringing it up over and over again. And then we see that initially with God's free choice, his own election, his own choosing of of Abraham. And then we see that God chooses a specific people for himself. He chooses Israel. Of all of the peoples of the earth, he chooses Israel. He elects. He elects them to be his his treasured possession, a kingdom of, of priests, a holy nation. So when we come to the New Testament, we see this same sort of election brought into the concepts of, of New Testament things as well. And in every case, when when we talk about God's choice or election is meant to encourage and to bring assurance, not presumption. It's meant to inspire holiness, not moral apathy. It's meant to inspire humility, not pride. It's meant to encourage us to witness, not give in to laziness. But notice this, that there's no explanation here or anywhere else 
of why God chooses to elect except, he says, because of God's love. And we see that in Deuteronomy too. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest of all people, but it was because the Lord loved you. And then similarly here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, um, Paul is uniting the love of God with the election of God. Let me put it this way. He chose you because he loves you. He loves you because he loves you. It is not because you are lovely or have something lovely in your character or in your physique or anything else. The love is not in you. The love is in God and in his nature. Why does God choose to elect some? It's a mystery. But what we know is he elects because of his great love. And from there we'll have to rest content that it is a mystery. But before we leave this subject... We need to note that there's an interesting assertion that Paul makes here because he says that we know, brothers loved of God, that he's chosen you. How does he know that? How does he know that these people are elect of God? And he tells us that the reason is that there's evidence in their lives of the activity of the Holy Spirit. Specifically, two evidences. The first evidence is when we preached the word to you, you responded. It made sense. You accepted it. The Holy Spirit was working through the delivering of the word. The Holy Spirit made, made you understand that it made sense to you. That's the first evidence. And the second evidence is your life was changed. You're not who you used to be. That's how he says we, we know that you are elect of God. And specifically, he mentions that because the Holy Spirit has come into your life, because you're elect, it is producing in your life faith, hope, and love. But not in that order. I just That's the one I got stuck in from 1 Corinthians. Verse 5. And Paul says, uh, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Now, first notice that he says the gospel came to, uh, came to you in words. I've run into people who have this real lofty idea that we preach the gospel, only we don't use words. That's nonsense. You, you cannot communicate the gospel without words. It is a message. It has content. Words have to be used to communicate what the message is. It is it is an announcement. It's not a feeling. You can't just look at somebody and say, you know, you lent me your lawnmower. You must be a Christian. They're, they're not going to make the connection. There is a definite content to the message of the gospel. It's something like this. God, in his love, has given his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die in the place of sinners, of which you were one. And at that time, you were his enemy. You were hostile to God. He was hostile to you. And Jesus lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He rose again from the grave in order that we, while we were still sinners, might be forgiven of our sins. While we were still ungodly, we might be delivered from the domain of darkness and, these, and its grip on us broken that we might be accepted back into God's family so that we could dwell with him forever. Something like that. You see, there's content to the message. You can't just get it ethereally. You have to use words. And so Paul says, we used words. 
and he thanks God that, that when he used words, it made sense to them. But, he says, we didn't come with just words. We also came with a powerful demonstration of the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about magic. He's not talking about charismatic gifts. He's talking about the power of the Holy Spirit that results in conviction of their hearts and change in their lives. He's pointing out the fact that the Word of God is powerful and active and sharper than a two-edged sword from Hebrews, what is that, 412, Hanson? I don't know. Um, he's talking about the gospel is the power of God for salvation. I think that's Romans 1.15 or 16 or something. It's an announcement to these Thessalonians that the word is not just words. It's not just the message. It's not just laying it out. It's the power of the Holy Spirit, which not only helps you understand these words, but become convicted by them, changed by them, so you embrace the gospel. There's power that comes with life-changing force. Now, these Thessalonians had heard the word, and they had heard it affect their life. They had felt it affect their life, and so they were changed by the power of Paul's preaching. Verse 5. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction and with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need to say nothing. So apparently, remember I told you that Paul sent Silas and Timothy back up north to find out how, their, how the churches were doing because he had to leave in, in, in a hurry. And he didn't know how the churches were going to prosper. He didn't know if they were going to struggle. And so he's anxious to hear back, and so he sends Ty, Silas and Timothy back up north to find out. But before they got back, even before they came back to report to them, word has come to Paul. Remember Paul's following the Via Ignatia, very famous Roman highway. And Paul's down in Athens and later in Corinth, and before these guys even get back, other people are drifting through with news about what's taken place in Thessalonica and in Philippi. And Paul's down there by this time in Corinth. Remember Acts 18? I think we're in Acts chapter 18, where Paul is in Corinth and he meets... Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla's the woman, Aquila's the man. Um, they're tent makers. They've recently been kicked out of Rome, and he meets them in Corinth. Well, people are coming into these metropolitan cities from all over the place, and word comes to Paul that the church in Thessalonica is really taken off, and he's pretty stoked about that. And he hears about their, their, their coming um, to God, and they're spreading the news that they've heard, and they're spreading it in a couple of different ways. One, in word. What's the message? The gospel word. But they're also spreading it with their actions, their faith. People come to faith in God through the message and through the example. Notice there's no evangelistic crusades, there's no Jesus billboards, there's no gospel tracts. What's leading people to get saved through the Thessalonican witness? 
their faith, their behavior. MacArthur said, here you go, professor. MacArthur said, most people don't come to Christ as an immediate response to a sermon they hear in a crowded setting. They come to Christ because of the influence of an individual. In an overwhelming majority of new believers' testimony, they tell us that they came to Christ primarily because of the testimony of a coworker, a neighbor, a relative, or a friend. There's no question that the most effective means for bringing people to Christ is one at a time on an individual basis. And what did they see in these Thessalonians? They saw sincerity, they saw godliness, they saw love for other Christians, and the gospel spread. Verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned from, to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So Paul is talking about how these guys had converted, verse 9, from their idols. Now, Remember, he witnessed this first in the synagogue, and the first converts are Jews. They were not idol worshipers. Ever since the Babylonian captivity, there was no idol worship among the Jewish people. So the people he's talking about are largely Gentile converts, people who literally worshipped idols, these figures. And he's pointing out that they have turned from these non-living entities, these idols, to the living God. Notice how these early Christians understood that becoming a Christian requires a definite, radical, transforming break from their old life. A lot of these guys had been, had been turned from, from pagan idolatry. They, 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 they just realized they could not place Christ alongside their idols. They couldn't keep their idols and add Christ to the mix. Coming to Christ demanded the abandonment of their old life, the renunciation of the, these former idols. They saw that there was a fundamental, basic antithesis between God and their idolatrous culture, and they had to turn radically from their idolatrous culture to embrace the living God. And the history of Christian missions ever since that time has been the testimony of people turning from idols to the living God. There's a story of uh, John Stott has in, his, in a book. He's talking about these Christians that had been converted among the Burmese. And there was a Burmese man who became an evangelist. And he goes out to this tribal area and he witnessed this to them. And he writes later about their conversion to Christ. He says, we explained to them the pure, simple gospel and Christ's lordship over the devil and evil forces, after which they were counseled to confess and forsake their evil deeds and to receive Christ Jesus as their Savior and Lord. With brokenness and tears and guilt, they responded. Then they burned up the charms and ambulance, took a wood knife, and cut up the spirit's house made of bamboo and wood, claiming the lordship of Jesus Christ and singing Christ's victory songs and putting all of ourselves under the blood of the Lamb of God and the rule of his Holy Spirit and claiming God's protection. Where, the, where these guys were in Thessalonica, you could see the top of Mount Olympus. 
It was about 50 miles away. That is supposedly where all the Greek gods lived, there at the top of Mount Olympus. And they are forsaking this Greek pantheon of gods and embracing the living God. They are destroying the culture that they grew up in to embrace the truth in the living God. It's easy for us to see how a tribal people in Burma or ancient people in Thessalonica could get rid of their idols. It's less easy for us to see the idols that we, in our culture, cherish and still try to hold on to. And unlike the Thessalonians, what we want to do is we want to have our idols and add Christ to them. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, points out that Americans are not likely to worship a literal idol like to Athena, Aphrodite, Ares, or Artemis. But our culture is deeply involved in the very things that these idols represented. And so, so Keller writes, each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each one has its own shrines, whether office towers, spas, and gyms, studios, or stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to produce the blessing of the good life and ward off disaster. What are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement but these same things that have assumed mystic proportions in our individual lives and in our society? We, not, we may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and to gain more wealth. And again, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be successful. The, the problem is that when success became, becomes key to our identity, our, our, our significance, our security, then we have made success an idol. And there's nothing wrong with, with fitness and beauty. I'm thankful for all of you that keep working at it. But <laughs> when we glorify the physical form and when we, when we make that the, the ultimate thing to pursue after, we're making that an idol. And of course, one of the most common forms of idolatry in our culture is the worship of money and all that it can buy. And in his book, Keller talks about all the suicides that took place in New York in 2008 when there was an economic crash. And these guys despaired of life because they had lost so much money and they couldn't imagine continuing with life if they didn't have their money. And so they killed themselves. Keller says, an idol is something we cannot live without. We must have it, and it, therefore it drives us to break rules we once, are, we once honored and to harm others and even ourselves in order to get it. Idols are spiritual addictions that lead to terrible evil. Now for this reason, Paul is praising God because these Thessalonians have been delivered from this idolatry. They have, they have been delivered from the, the, the superstitiousness and from the, the fear of their idols and, and thinking that their idols were going to give them the, the things that made life worthwhile. And they believed the gospel, and it changed their lives. They began to worship and to trust and serve 
the, the living God. Just like these, those, just like those tribesmen from Burma, however, I, you know, I kind of wonder if, if, if we have claimed the lordship of Jesus Christ and if we have abandoned our idols and destroyed them and trusted Christ alone for, for, for power and for protection and salvation. Now, I have a, dog, a diagnostic question that this raises, and that is the Thessalonians had a reputation for abandoning their idols, the idols of their culture, and embracing Christ. Is that a reputation that we have as a church? That we have abandoned the idols of our culture? Is that a reputation you think you have as an individual? That we have forsaken the, the, the idols of our generation and embraced Christ? Because if we had a reputation like that, people would see that we were changed. And it would bring them to Christ. Okay, so there's a final component here to the Thessalonians' exemplary exemplary reputation than Paul is giving thanks to God for, and that is that they were a Christ-awaiting church. And Paul concludes the opening statement of this letter, the, the end of his chapter here, by saying that they had turned to God in order to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. See, they, they didn't expect that they were going to earn salvation because they're they've abandoned their idols. They didn't expect that they were going to achieve salvation because they had believed the witness. They are counting on Jesus to provide salvation for them. They are counting on Jesus, the same Savior who died for their sins, to come again in great glory and deliver them from evil. And it's an interesting thing that every chapter ends, every chapter in 1 Thessalonians ends by Paul making a reference to the second coming of Christ. And I thought that was pretty, pretty curious. We'll, we'll go more deeply in that when it becomes specifically our subject matter. But Paul cites good reasons that these uh, new believers should expect um, Christ to return from heaven. The first of which is that God had promised that he would bring Christ back. And if God had the power to resurrect his son from the grave, from being dead, he certainly has the power to bring his son back from heaven to earth. So there's, there's a, the doctrine of, of eschatology, the doctrine of, of his, his resurrection, that God is going to fulfill the promises he makes. And so it gives us a reason to believe that God will do what he tells us to. Now, Paul goes on to add a reason for this hope, and he says that Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Unlike human wrath, God's wrath is not uh, an, an outburst of anger. It is rather a, 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 an expression of his righteousness, his, his holiness, his burning resolve to, to, to deal with evil. Let me just say this. Apart from God's wrath, he would be completely unworthy of our worship. Because it would mean that he is a deity who accepts compromise, who tolerates evil, and does not deal with rebellion against his sovereign rights. As sinners, we have every reason to dread, to fear the coming wrath of God, whether we face that wrath when we die and stand in his presence, or whether we face that wrath 
at the end of time when Jesus comes again. But as Christians, we don't fear that because we are fully aware that that penalty for his wrath has already been paid. And Christ has accepted that wrath. It's, the fire has already burned against him. And so there's nothing left of God's wrath to come upon us. So rather than fearing God's wrath, we can look forward to Christ's return because we are free, we are delivered from the wrath to come. With nothing, therefore, to fear from God's judgment and literally everything to gain, we as believers then look forward with conquering hope at the return of Christ Jesus. Now, everybody had heard about the change of life in the Thessalonian community. Their, their bold rejection of idolatry, their, their joy in the midst of opposition. Everyone had seen how their lives had been transformed by these new values, how they'd been filled with faith, hope, and love. And people were impressed, and they came to see for themselves, and they embraced the truth, and many more became saved because of it. Because they were convinced, not only by what they heard from this church in Thessalonica, but what they had also seen with their own eyes. No wonder Paul has so much to be extremely thankful for. How many reasons, how he had to be super abundantly thankful, and so do we. Let's pray. I'll ask uh, those that are going to be leading us communion to come forward and the gentlemen that are going to be serving communion if you'd come forward at this time. Let's pray. We ask, Father, now as we prepare our hearts to receive these elements that you would set them aside from a common use, ordinary bread, ordinary wine, to represent the body and the blood of Jesus. We ask that we would examine our own lives, and that we would renew our commitments to follow you with all of our hearts, to abandon our, our idols, the idols of our culture. We ask you, God, to make us changed, to make our faith winsome that others would come to saving faith as well. And now, Father, we share this communion with our brothers and our sisters, not only in this room, but worldwide today, as we all express our faith our hope in Jesus Christ and our joy that his body and his blood offered for us were sufficient. And now there's nothing but your love left for us. Guide us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.